This program is brought to you by the Practicing Law Institute, a nonprofit learning organization dedicated to keeping attorneys, professionals, and accountants at the forefront of knowledge and expertise. Hey there, Insecurities listeners. Kurt Wolf here with a quick show note on today's episode. Want to apologize in advance due to some technical difficulties. My sound is, well, suboptimal. That said, I had an awesome conversation with Sandra Hanna, and I hope that you will stick around for the entire thing. As always, thanks for tuning in. Hello, welcome to the Insecurities Podcast. This is Kurt Wolf, usually your co-host, but this week your host, as Chris is spending some much-needed time at home with his brand-new baby girl. Congratulations to Chris and Casey from me and the whole PLI team. The show must go on, of course, but it is a real shame, actually, that Chris can't be here because this week I am going to chat with our good friend, Sandra Hanna, about one of me and Chris's favorite annual conferences, the Securities Enforcement Forum. Before we jump in and talk about the Securities Enforcement Forum, I'd like to take just a moment to introduce our guest, Sandra Hanna. Many of our guests will know Sandra, of course, and some may remember her from episode 25 way back in November 2020. She shows up every 25 episodes, so she shows up. Uh, But back in November 2020, Sandra joined us to talk about the SEC Enforcement Division's annual report for fiscal year 2020. Sandra is recognized as a nationwide leader in securities enforcement matters. She leads Miller & Chevalier's securities enforcement practice, where she represents clients in investigations and proceedings by the SEC, DOJ, PCAOB, FINRA, and other federal and international law enforcement agencies. She also has experience leading SEC and DOJ-appointed independent corporate monitor teams. As you might guess, she has an impressive list of accolades and recognitions a mile long, including Chambers Ranking. You can find it all at MillerChevalier.com. My favorite fun fact about Sandra, though, and this is something I've known for years, but just spotted in her bio for the first time, is that prior to attending law school and business school, she managed the professional careers of several Grammy Award-winning musicians. She was quite literally on a world tour. If you don't know, look it up. Sandra, thanks so much for coming back to see us. Happy to be here. You guys are incredible. You've done an amazing job with this, and I'm happy to play Chris any time, and I hope he's having a great time with the baby. I haven't seen any pictures yet, so I'm looking forward to that, and good for him for taking some time off. And I thought we weren't going to talk about pasts, because we can do that. (laughs) <laughs> if you'd well, like. I think we should just, you know, keep going right on to the substance. We don't need to bore the listeners with any of the dirt that you might have on me. Don't Google that. Keep the Google to Sandra. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks okay. for having me. Yeah, thanks so much. So let's talk a little bit about the Securities Enforcement Forum. Uh, some longtime listeners will have heard the story before that that is actually where Chris and I met for the first time. It might have been the first ever Securities Enforcement Forum, like five or six or seven years ago. Uh, we were both dutifully tweeting along using the hashtag, hashtag SEF, whatever the year was. 
I bumped into each other at the at a break during the conference and start up a conversation. And uh, here we are today, or here I am. So it's always been near and dear to our heart. The conference uh, happens annually here on the East Coast, although there are now installments on the West Coast, the Bay Area, for the first time this year. Bruce Cartman, the good folks over at Securities Docket, did a version of this conference in Chicago. The thing that I like about this conference is that it is the only one that focuses on enforcement, right? A lot of the other conferences out there, they'll sort of try to cover the waterfront. This one is like one day, great panels, enforcement only. And when I say great panels, I mean it. So this year, the panels featured tons of folks from the staff at the SEC, including Corey Schuster, who's the co-chief of the Asset Management Unit, Creed Kelly, who's the chief of the SEC's Office of the Whistleblower, David Hirsch, who's the chief of the Crypto Assets and Cyber Unit, Joe Sansone, who's the chief of the SEC's Market Abuse Unit, Melissa Hodgman, who is the acting director of the Division of Enforcement. There are some others, but you get the picture. Every single panel has one sort of household name staff member for those of us that practice in the space. We also had a keynote from the Director of Enforcement, Kirby Craywall, a speech in person from Chair Gary Gensler, which we're going to talk a little bit about. And for me, a couple of the highlights this year, in addition to Sandra's panel, which we'll also talk about, were the Financial Firms in the Crosshairs panel. That featured former Chief of the AMU Unit, Daniel Reardon, Adam Patterson from Wilkie, and Corey Schuster. Uh, I always love this panel because I do a lot of work with financial services firms. I also love the Insider Trading 360 panel because I want to, always includes my good friend Bill White. We also had George Canellis from Millbank, who was former, I think he was the co-director of the, of the Division of Enforcement. But I think Insider Trading just really lends itself to some great stories and it's a constantly evolving story. So one of my favorite panels. Uh, anyway, that's a little bit of background on the Securities Enforcement Forum. Sandra, you were there too. I don't know what you sort of thought high level or what you think about the conference generally. It's my. It's also my favorite conference of the year. It, it's got all the sort of rock stars in the defense bar, but it, it is substantive and not just war stories. I always yeah. learn something. There's real substantive talk about active live cases. The staff is always great. It feels an intimate crowd, even though it's not a small conference. There's thousands yeah. of people who watch it online. Of course, it's always really nice to see people, but it's one of the few, you and I go to all the conferences, right? Or most of the conferences. But it is one of them where I really do learn something every single, every time. Bruce does a really good job. I haven't done been to the ones on the West Coast or the new one in Chicago yet, but I want to go next year. I heard the California, both California and Chicago were great this year. And it's a it's kind of a different bar on the West Coast and Chicago too. And there are great experts there as well. So I'll, I'll make sure to do that next year. He's really done a great job. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Kudos to Bruce and the team. And, and it's a good point about how the bar is actually a little bit different on the West Coast. I typically tune into that one remotely. And the first couple of years I did so, some of the folks I recognized or maybe had worked with before, or maybe folks on the staff I've, I've had a case with. But then some of the folks I was like, oh, who's this person? That's a really smart commentator. Yes. Googling them in the background. So it's nice to, to yeah. meet the folks on the other side of the country that, that have a similar practice. It, it- it's true. Although I, I do still feel like Washington is the center of the SEC world, but uh, I'm sure San Francisco and New York disagree with us. And, and there are just really good practitioners in these other markets that are, are worth knowing and a pleasure to work with. 
I'm quite sure New York would, but um, we'll say that to say that debate for another day. Uh, okay, all right. So there's two big things that we want to focus on today, or, or sort of unpack a little bit. The first is uh, Chair Danzler's speech that he gave to a, a room full of people eating lunch, as tends to be the case through all the clinking. He gave some remarks that I think we should actually pay attention to a little bit. And then the other thing is your panel, Sandra, which I thought was actually really fascinating. We had some great folks on the panel with you, like Bill Lucas, who in the rules adds some really helpful commentary or observations. <laughs> Maybe you all think so. We'll see. Anyway, so let's start with, uh, with Chair Gensler's speech. As I noted, he appeared in person, which was actually pretty cool. I, I haven't seen him in person in quite some time. I think he just convened the first open meeting of the SEC in person for a, a couple of years. The last time they sat down to consider some rulemaking proposals or adopt new rules. The first thing that I noticed or maybe picked up on in listening to his speech, he didn't really say this overtly, like, this is what I'm going to tell you, but he previewed the SEC's enforcement results for the year. And he sort of sprinkled some of those statistics in there. I don't know if it's okay for us to talk to this, about the statistics. I know directors of Bacon and Pekin really didn't like it while we did, but it seems like maybe we can again. I'm going to anyway. So according to the chair, in fiscal year 2023, the SEC filed more than 780 actions, including more than 500 standalone cases. They obtained judgments and orders totaling $5 billion, and they returned $930 million to harm investors. Just for comparison purposes, last year, the last fiscal year, the SEC filed 760 total enforcement actions. So we're kind of up with 462 standalone actions. Again, we're up this year. The penalties, disgorgement, prejudgment, interest, et cetera, totaled $6.4 billion last year. So that was higher last year than this year, but I think there were a couple outliers there in terms of the amount of the penalties. And then if we go back even farther, Sandra, than when you were here a couple of years ago, that year, fiscal 2020, the SEC reported 715 enforcement actions, 405 standalone actions, and $4.68 billion in disgorgement in penalties. So I guess depending on how you look at this, we could maybe spin it as up-up, or I mean, maybe there's a case to say we're starting to see some consistency in, in numbers year on year. I, I, I don't know. What do you think? What do you, what's your take on the numbers? I, I think it's generally up, but someone will do the math and figure out what it is if you take out the off-channel cases, right? And if it's really up or, or if yeah. that skews it, right? 40 cases in a couple of years may affect the numbers and certainly affects the disgorgement or the penalty amounts in a meaningful way. I, it, I'll tell you as a defense lawyer, and I think you have this experience too, it, it certainly feels like it's up. And we, yes. can, right? and we can debate around the margins about the numbers or whether they should have issued one order instead of you know, three orders for a case. Are they double counting? Right. Like all that sort of numbers play. But it's certainly the numbers that he announced are consistent with the feelings of intensity that we as defense yeah. counsel have been experiencing Absolutely. in this administration. Yeah, I think that's right. It, it definitely it does not feel at all like there is any slowdown. And at least over the last, I don't know, eight or nine months in particular, it's felt like it constantly has that end of year pace, at least for me. I think there was a little period where it was slow, sort of in the end of 
2022, maybe into the beginning of 2023. And it was like, everybody woke up at the same time. And it's been crazy ever since. And it's even crazier right now, I think, because folks are still a little worried, like, is there going to be a shutdown? Is there not going to be a shutdown? So the, the pace just continues to rack it up. Yeah, I think absolutely there's going to be a shutdown. My partners that know better than I do tell me there absolutely will be a shutdown. And frankly, I, I think in September, the pace was nuts because we were expecting a shutdown to happen in the first instance, right? And so a bunch of people on the staff have said, I have to get this done before, what's the date, November 17th. So it feels a little bit crazy. I also think that some people on the staff were looking forward to a shutdown, especially folks on the rulemaking <laughs> side, because they have yeah. just been operating oh. at such a pace that I don't know how normal humans can keep up with that kind of superhuman pace. It's, it's really pretty incredible. Uh, and, and we're feeling it in the defense bar. There's, it's, it's pretty obviously aggressive times coming from the staff, but just the number of cases, the number of requests, the sort of broad ranging subpoenas, everything just feels bigger and harder to accomplish with the staff as a defense lawyer these days. Yeah, I agree. I mean, so many times, I think, especially when times are particularly busy, we'll kind of joke among ourselves like, oh, it's a good problem to have. But I don't know. It, it feels like a lot. It really does feel like a lot. Well, one of the other stats I just kind of wanted to tease out there that I thought, um, and we'll talk a little bit more about this later, but um, I thought that you would be particularly interested in, according to the chair, the SEC received more than 40,000, 40,000 TCRs. So that's form TCR tips, complaints, and referrals. That's how whistleblowers make reports to the SEC. They received more than 40,000 TCRs in the previous fiscal year, including more than 18,000 from whistleblowers who are sort of folks who want to participate in the whistleblower program. That's insane. I mean, that's, yeah. a, that's a record. I think it, I don't know the, the prior numbers, but it feels insane to me. And just the administration of that much data is just a colossal enterprise. And I'm not sure I understand the distinction he was making between the 40,000 and the 18,000. You guys should have Cree on and ask her about that. But I'm not surprised at the increase in whistleblowers. They've made it very easy. You can go on the website and just bang it out. And there it is. You filed a TCR. But the internally, the processes that they've created to just administer and deal with that kind of paperwork is just like a logistics nightmare, I'm sure. I, I can't imagine how they triage that. I mean, I remember in the beginning, there were, I think when they started, there were two people in the office of the whistleblower. And I remember when they got up to like five or six or seven, which was after Jane Norberg had become the chief. In the Sean McKessie days, there were like literally like three people there. It was like, it's Sean, yeah. Vince Martinez, and like one other person. Um, now, I, I still don't think they have enough bodies. And I think they have more than 20 now. Maybe, maybe my, my numbers are off. But still, I don't know how they do it. I don't know how they do it. Yeah, I don't know how they do it either. It's pretty amazing. I know Jane paid a lot of attention to processes and putting them in place. And Cree has done a lot of additional work on that. But it's just a staggering number. But when you see people like, the Erickson whistleblower was reported to get 200, almost $300 million, I think. Of course, the numbers are that high. Of course, they are. Like, why wouldn't you, if you were inside at a company, why wouldn't you do it? And I wonder what the numbers are for sort of professional whistleblowers or short seller types versus insiders. Some more granularity on that data would be interesting. 
Yeah, that's interesting. I, I think that if that was good business for a while, I don't know how long it will be because I, I think that the enforcement staff is starting to take a look at the, uh, the we'll call them the research firms themselves to just get a sense of how they're getting their information and the motivations for reporting and things like that. But definitely interesting, but still picking up. That one's definitely up. Okay, so in addition to previewing some of the stats for the year, of course, we're eagerly awaiting the annual report. We got a glimpse. In addition to that, the chair addressed a number of hot topics in the regulatory and enforcement space. Of course, we heard about crypto. Of course, we heard about crypto. Off-channel communications, individual accountability, gatekeepers. On some level, it sounded like a lot of the same topics we hear from the chair whenever he talks about enforcement. But I, I don't know, Sandra, if you picked up on any change in tone or emphasis or any priorities. Uh, nope, not so much. He punted on a couple of things. He was asked about the effects of the ALJ constitutional proceedings, and he said something like, I'll let the court speak on that. So he punted on a bunch of things I would have liked to know more about, but it's sort of more of the same, um, I think. What about you? Do you? Did you hear anything new from him? No, I did not. I think the rhetoric was sharper in places, particularly with respect to crypto. Not that to say nice things about crypto, but I think the rhetoric was a little bit sharper here. I mean, otherwise, and it was the same with, with Director Greg Wall's speech as well, his keynote. It, it, it felt to me like they're giving a version of the same speech when they come back. I don't know why that is. Maybe they feel like either different industries or the defense bar just aren't getting the message, but it does feel like a lot of the same. Uh, I will say I was a little surprised that he agreed to do a Q&A, that Gensler did a Q&A with Bruce. I don't think we learned much from that process, but I, I was surprised that he agreed to do it in that in the room full of defense lawyers. I One programming highlight for me was the conversation between Anita and the director of enforcement. Mm-hmm. I, that was a really good addition. Anita did a great job, of course. And I don't know that he said, I agree with you, I don't think anything new, but I thought that was a really good way to handle that audience. I wish he had been able to do it in person. He did tell some jokes there, right? There was a, a joke about subpoena enforcement in particular that kind of went over like a lead balloon in that audience. <laughs> but I got to give it up to Anita also. Yeah, she had, and I should have mentioned there were a couple of features of the keynote. So Chair Gensler gave a speech, they were prepared remarks. But then after that, as you mentioned, he sat down with, with Bruce Carter, who organizes the conference, and took, I don't know, maybe eight or so questions sort of live right there on stage. And from what I understand, Bruce sourced those questions from some of the folks who were attending the conference, right? So yeah, uh, kudos to the chair for being willing to do that. Like, like you say, I mean, you know, obviously he sits and answers questions in congressional hearings, so he can handle it, right? But still, it was—I thought it was generous of him to use his time that way. But yeah, Gabriel Graywell also did a sort of Q and A with Anita Bandy, who was sort of in the, the unlucky circumstance of having to interview someone who was not there. So she's standing at the podium in front of a room full of people, while the director Graywell is on the big screen behind her, and she she handled it amazingly well. And led a really good conversation, despite that challenging circumstance. Even if the, the director didn't say a lot of stuff <laughs> during his remarks, it turns out though he did say something. I'm remembering now, and if, if you haven't had Anita on, you should. She would be a great 
guest, he said something about cases against chief information security officers. Mm-hmm. And then lo and behold, yesterday that Solar Winds case came out yeah. and they charged the CISO in that in a what I think is a pretty shocking complaint. Um, yeah. And he, he previewed it. I wouldn't have guessed it from what he said because those cases are super rare, as we all admitted. Yeah, I agree. I think, I mean, with respect to solar winds in particular, a lot of us were wondering, like, whatever happened there. And so it, it's definitely interesting, the, the timing. Uh, I mean, I know I was working with clients, whatever, like a year and a half ago or whatever, they sent out that letter to a whole lot of people asking about their cybersecurity infrastructure. So it's taken quite a while for that case to wind through. Um, it'll, yeah, it'll the timing be... is interesting. It, uh, and it'll be a good case to watch. It's going to be litigated by really good defense counsel for both the mm-hmm. company and the CISO. And, and I would definitely set client alert, docket alerts for that. It's going to be a good one to watch. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so let's talk about a couple of the things or break them down a little bit more that, that the chair talked about before we turn to, to your panel. First is crypto. I think we got to think about what he had to say there. And I'm just going to read, <laughs> going to read the, the quote that I thought at least captured my attention. So again, like I said, it's the chair standing in front of a, a room full of members of the defense bar. And he says, how many of you in the audience have clients in the crypto markets? And he pauses and I don't know, at least half of the room raised their hand. And then he says, with wide ranging non-compliance, frankly, it's not surprising that we've seen many problems in these markets. This is a field rife with fraud, scams, bankruptcies, and money laundering. So like, I think this is sort of a theme with the chair. He's talked about the crypto landscape a, a bunch. I think there's more than a dozen speeches and prepared remarks that I could find online when he's talking about crypto. Obviously, he talks about it before congressional committees. He has office hours with Gary Gensler on YouTube where he talks about it. So sort of nothing new in terms of the focus. But I don't know, did this sound different to you? Or what do you make of him just always bringing it up? I, I, I don't know, like a one-note guitar. I'm really, I mean, frankly, I'm just kind of bored of it. Like, we get it, right? And they're just continuing with this line of cases. For me personally, the most important to me of the crypto cases are what Gerbeer has talked about in terms of affinity fraud and people, mm-hmm. retail customers who are un- underbanked who become victims of affinity fraud because they are skeptical of regular banks. And so they look to crypto for some alternative. Those cases are really compelling to me. The rest of many of the rest of the cases, the Coinbase's and the Ripple's are really about should be rulemaking cases and not enforcement actions, right? I'm I'm not talking about the Ponzi schemes. Obviously, you have to charge the Ponzi schemes, but I'm just kind of sick of this. Right, like without the guidance, you've got good market participants trying to do the right thing, and the SEC refusing to engage with them on it. I find those arguments from Coinbase in particular and Ripple in that litigation. Mm-hmm. I agree completely. It's I don't often complain about regulation by enforcement, certainly not here on the podcast, but I do feel like that's where we are in the crypto space. Yeah, and, I, and I'm not a, a knee-jerk reactionary. It's just there's a lot of other things happening in the market, too, yeah. right? 
I'm a good Democrat, but I would like to see a return to accounting cases, financial reporting cases. It just feels a little bit like all crypto all the time is not really in the service of the markets. I feel the same way about off-channel comms. A lot of resources. I know we'll talk about that a little bit too, but I think we need to sort of get back to first principles and bring back financial reporting cases where real investor harm is happening. And I'm not disagreeing about investor harm and Ponzi schemes and the like in the crypto market, but we kind of get it. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. All right, well, let's move on to off-channel because you're, you're right. We, there are plenty of other things we can talk about here. So the, the chair's quote on uh, off-channel was as follows. Uh, Since December 2021, in part through an ongoing sweep for potential violations, we have brought cases against 40 firms required significant undertakings and ordered more than $1.5 billion in penalties. In the last fiscal year alone, we settled record-keeping-related charges with 23 firms. Our actions uncovered not only the widespread use of personal devices and non-official channels to discuss business, but a complete failure of financial firms to maintain or preserve those off-channel communications. Something we've talked about here on the podcast before continues to be, I know, a big topic for my financial services firms, clients. But you know, Sandra, I don't know, what, do you, what do you make of this string of cases? Because again, it's like we've talked about before, there's, there's always a couple of ways of looking at these, right? Is this just the latest sweep that's bumping up the enforcement figures or is there something more to this? Well, I think there's no doubt that there's a really important law enforcement priority with these cases, right? Like if it's not just about the rule for the sake of the rule, but if they're not, if firms are not complying with the rule, I understand the government's position and the DOJ has taken a similar position that they can't investigate cases, right? So this is really ultimately about the ability of law enforcement to do its job. Um, So I get that. And I I don't, and, and I think that's right as an enforcement priority. I wonder, and lots of people have wondered, this isn't me, about the use of resources here and how much, how many more cases we're going to see on the panel where this was talked about. My, my, my former partner and good friend, Greg Bruce, said something really funny. He was asked how many more cases, off-channel comms cases there would be. And he said, whatever the total number of broker-dealer cases is, minus the 40 they brought already. <laughs> and, and in some ways, and it, it's a lot like crypto, it's like an annuity, right? It's just, it's the gift that yeah. keeps on, that keeps on giving. And so one wonders whether at this point, this there's a more efficient way to get to this result, right? And when you look at the substance of some of these cases, the staff's investigation was sort of appropriately limited limited here. They would take a small number of custodians and extrapolate based on what they found from that small number of custodians. And I think they're getting more efficient now as these cases go on. But is this is this the kind of thing that the next administration is going to do differently? Right? I'm not saying they shouldn't bring these cases. I'm not saying there's not a law enforcement priority or purpose there. But is there a more efficient way to get to the same results? self-reporting, a kind of sweep, something. Because as I understand it, so many firms, not all for sure, but so many firms, as soon as the first JP Morgan came out, undertook mm-hmm. a bunch of remedial measures. The other thing about the off-channel cases is, are we going to continue to see ICCs appointed in these matters? What do you think? 
How do you think the story ends? Or does it end? <laughs> yeah, I mean, so I think there will certainly be more. I wouldn't be surprised if we got another bundle of these cases, right? And then the question is, have they made the point sufficiently loudly that they think the industry kind of gets it? And then maybe we'll see one-offs in the future with particularly egregious conduct or alleged misconduct. Because I agree with you. Not, this is not lost on many firms. They immediately started thinking, how do we deal with this? What do we do about bring your own device to work policies and things like, I mean, I've had many calls with clients just trying to get their head around this. Like, what should we do? I mean, set aside whether they think they have an actual violation or they're considering self-reporting, any of that stuff. But like, we don't want a problem in the future the next time we get examined or we don't want a whistleblower complaint to work its way up through to the enforcement staff and we haven't done anything. So I do think firms are, are responding as you would want them to. Does that mean some firms out there just missed it or don't care? Sure. Right. But maybe those are the cases you need to start with. Yeah, I think that's right. And it'll be interesting to see what happens with the registered investment advisors. We've seen some jointly registered BD and an RIA cases amongst the 40 that have settled, but it's been pretty rare. There were also the two credit rating agency cases that came out before the end of yeah. the fiscal year, and they have an entirely different standard. So I think they've brought, or obviously the broker dealer cases are the bulk of them, but they've brought enough of them across the industry that if they, the message is certainly out. It'll be really interesting if some of the RIAs do in fact litigate, as is rumored to possibly happen. There's a good argument there. But, but ultimately, I think the smaller firms are the ones that are going to face the most pressure here. And I wonder if the next, maybe not the next round, but the next round of cases, we'll start to see individual, you know, individual liability, right? So you have a system in a compliance system in place, you have a good surveillance system in place, you figured out the tech, all of that. And so if there are continued failures after that, I bet we would see CCO liability in those circumstances, and maybe individual supervisor liability in those circumstances. Yeah, quite possibly. I don't know that listeners will be really excited to hear that there's going to be a next round of cases, but I think that may just be that may just be where we are. Okay, so we talked a little bit about the chair's speech and some of the I think were some of the key themes or takeaways. Let's pivot and talk a little bit about your panel, which was excellent. Congratulations on uh, a wonderful panel. It was called. Masterclass, managing a trade. <laughs> I'm just reading masterclass. The, the, the jokes, the text jokes were just amazing all day. I, <laughs> look, I thought it lived up to the billing. Okay, but anyway, it were was. You tweeting? Uh, were you live tweeting? I don't remember if I tweeted from you. I have tons of notes from your panel. I actually don't think really? I did tweet. Yeah. Um, so funny. Actually, some of them are, are the questions that I want to ask you. So <laughs> <laughs> the panel focused on what it says is managing a true corporate crisis or major internal investigation. In, in addition to you, the panel featured Bill McLucas of Wilmer Hale, Bill Baker of Lake Watkins, Hanna Marlier, Brad Bondi, and that was it, right? You were the last, the last panelist. No one yes. from the staff on your panel. No one from the staff on our panel this year. I'm not sure. I'm not sure how that happened. I was a late addition to the panel. Replaced Bill Kinda. Couldn't make it. 
but uh, it's a it's always fun to do a panel with Nick Lucas. Always, he's got great. Yeah, stories. he's got great war stories. Always, he's great. And just because he is Bill McLucas, I mean, he can just say what he thinks, which I absolutely love. I'm like, who's gonna who's gonna challenge him on it? I did. I used to love when they would have all the, the current and, and all the former directors of enforcement on a panel. None of that this year. It was much more collegial, I'll say. <laughs> and and maybe you benefited from not having someone from the staff because I felt like you were able. The thing that we want to talk about is, is self reporting, which we'll get to. But you were able to have that conversation without sort of getting a sideways glance from the person on the staff who's going to say, like, well, you should self-report early and often. I, I don't know if, yeah. that, if you thought that impacted the presentation. No, not so much. I mean, I've done, I've, we've done this panel before with people on the staff and we, everyone on that, I think it was Jaime's first time speaking on this panel, but everyone else has done this panel before and we kind of all just say what we think always. So I don't really feel stymied in that way. And, and, there was a good healthy debate, I think, between me and the Bills yeah. on, on this issue of self-reporting. And they may be right. I don't know. We're all just guessing and all just <laughs> trying to read tea leaves. But I remain hopeful that cooperation and self-reporting can be a meaningful remedy. Yeah, so let's get into it a little bit, because it's actually something I don't know that we've ever talked about, at least not substantively here on the podcast. It's something I find fascinating that I deal with a lot in my practice. I think it's something that, that clients often struggle with, and that's this idea of, of self-reporting, specifically like whether to do it or not, or, or when to do it. So, I mean, let's set the table here. If we're talking about self-reporting, what does that even mean? Like, what does it look like? So many years ago... Now, the SEC issued Seaboard, which provides the ground rules for cooperation credit. And it's things like self-reporting, remediation, self-policing, all of those kind of traditional factors go into whether or not a company can get cooperation credit. And Seaboard is now, I don't know, 20-something years old. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, there's been no real additional guidance since um, unlike the Department of Justice that sort of constantly or frequently reissues or issues and updates guidance for companies in the context of criminal resolution it's very clear under the DOJ guidance you can get X off of the sentencing guidelines if you have done the following whatever and the SEC doesn't have those kinds of metrics, so it's really hard to measure what cooperation credit means for most respondents. So you know, there are real questions there about what the benefit of self-reporting is or mm -hmm. what cooperation credit gets you without further guidance from the SEC. All we really have is what we see in settlements and lots of anecdotal stories from good, experienced defense counsel about both what it got them and what it mostly what it didn't get them. And we see this in some recent settlements too. It's it's a pretty healthy debate. Yeah, so it it certainly is a, a healthy debate and it, it played out a little bit on the panel, of course. I think Bill Baker at, at least maybe was a little bit more skeptical than you about the value of cooperation. 
I think he was, in, in the first instance, skeptical, skeptical that you can really even articulate it to clients or boards of directors. He said, want to know, like, specifically, how much credit am I going to get? And, and then he, he got, well, I, don't, I thought he was joking. I don't know, you tell me. But I'll say he joked later that if a company publicly discloses the, the problem, that should count as, that should count as self-reporting, which I, I think you took issue with, and I certainly would too. But uh, let's start there. Is is public disclosure the same as self-reporting? No, of course not. And it doesn't get you the same benefits. One of the benefits of self-reporting is you get to pick your staff, or at least in the uh, initial matter. And, and ultimately, the staff, even if you know them and are friends with them and you were in their wedding, are not going to give you a break. Everyone is a professional, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in some ways, some people have said that their friends on the staffs treat them worse. <laughs> but at least, at least what you're getting, right? And you get the benefit of credibility without having to, to prove it every time. And so there's some benefit to that, right? But he's got a fair point. As I was preparing for today's podcast with you, I went back and looked at the couple of off-channel cases that were self-reported. And Bill makes a good point there. <laughs> there were two. Not a lot of credit. Yeah. I mean, they got... The words credit and cooperate, the words cooperation were used and self-reporting were used in the order, their HSBC and Scotia, but they paid $15 million in seven minutes, $7.5 million, I think, prospectively, in penalties. So what would those numbers have been if they had not self-reported and cooperated? I have no idea. Presumably they would be higher, but those are still meaningful numbers, right? They are. Yeah, um, absolutely. And relative to the size of their institutions, I don't know, did they fare better off, better than other organizations? It's just hard to say. Yeah, I, actually, so I didn't go back and look at those before we sat down to record the podcast, but I, I'd be sort of curious how detailed the description was of the cooperation, because something I've noticed is that they're not saying much about it anymore. There's now almost a, when you see the enforcement releases, a little paragraph or a section that says such and such defendant was given credit for whatever's in the list, self-reporting, cooperation, remediation, whatever they think applies, which is a far cry. If you remember back to like the Ralph Lauren case, whenever that was probably eight years ago or so, right? But they made a point of almost giving a blueprint in the, the release. Here's what they did. Here's why they got credit. We just don't see that anymore. And, I, and, and frankly, I've had... I've had conversations with folks who have said to me that they don't want to do it. They don't want to give a blueprint. That the staff doesn't want to give a blueprint? That the staff doesn't want to give a blueprint. Oh, that's really interesting and disappointing to hear. I'm looking at one of these off-channel cases, and it says, Commission considered remedial acts promptly undertaken by the respondent and cooperation afforded the commission staff. They self-reported off-channel comms related to the business of its broker-dealer prior to being contacted by the Division of Enforcement. Yeah. I mean, that's not exactly a roadmap. And, no. and the timing of it is a little suspicious. By this time, the investigations or the sweep had been public for some time, right? If they came yeah. forward before there was ever a notion in the press about the off-channel comms sweep, that would be different. But then I would expect them not to have paid this kind of penalty. Yeah, no, I, I, com- 
good point. Completely agree. It's a little bit of it's a little bit of a mystery right now. In which case, I guess the, the question is, and I, and I know that, that you believe there is a benefit or benefits to be had. I agree with you for, for what it's worth, so we're not going to have like a spirited debate about it. But I mean, kind of spell it out. Like, why would you do it? Why would you say to a client, I think you need to go in and tell them yourself? So in my experience, when we have gone in early, right away, reported to them weekly or every other week, given them updates on who we've interviewed, what we're doing, what the investigation looks like, visibility into the search terms. We have had demonstrably better outcomes than I would have expected to have, including no penalties. And that is really, it's just a fact. It's been true in several matters that we've handled and not gotten met results in other matters where we came in late and there wasn't that kind of cooperation and self-reporting. So it's all anecdotal, right? I don't have data to support this, but my own experience with self-reporting has been overwhelmingly positive. And given the statistics that you mentioned about whistleblowers and the 40,000 TCRs, don't you always sort of assume that there is a whistleblower in there somewhere? Yes, absolutely. And so if they match those things up later, there was a whistleblower in the pipeline and you knew about it, but didn't report. Do you want to be in that situation where you could have gotten cooperation credit? You can't see my air quotes, those of you listening to the podcast, but how are you going to tell the client? What happens when the client says to you, what would have happened if we went in a month earlier? And the answer is, I don't know, but maybe we could have gotten a different result. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. And I, I will actually take issue with something Bill McLucas said since he's not here to defend himself. But he, he made the comment, I mean, if it's above the fold in the Wall Street Journal for more than one day, they already know, why would you self-report? And my reaction was, that's exactly why you probably should have already done, right? You knew that that problem was coming. Yeah, you knew that problem was coming. Or his example on the panel was the BP oil spill, right? That was a sudden event. And yes, maybe then everyone was in crisis mode. You didn't have time to call the staff first thing. But second thing, you could have called the staff, right? And, And taken a cooperative posture. Yes, they know. But at least to say this event happened, we're wrapping our arms around it. We don't know what it means. I think that there may be value in that. Yeah. No, I agree because that, that can be the difference. And this is like we're, we're maybe getting in the weeds here, but that can be the difference between the staff giving you a little bit of a grace period to go do some work and come back. It can be the difference between them making a request for voluntary production of documents or an off-the-record interview with, with someone who works at the client and a subpoena for documents and testimony and they want you in there in, in two weeks. Not the two weeks out of sticks, but you know, I, I, it does, you're in a different Posture. Yeah, I think I think so. I don't know that it makes a difference at the end of the day, which was Bill Baker's point in terms of penalty, but it can certainly make the process a little bit more pleasant. Now, there are certain situations, I'm not advocating for self-reporting all the time in all cases. Right. Absolutely not. I'm, I'm not taking that position. And there are certain situations where it is reasonable to assume the staff is not going to find technical violations or something like that. And that's a different calculus, right? But for most of our, for maybe not most, for many of our clients in many 
circumstances. These are things that are going to come out in an exam or in connection with a DOJ matter or something else. And so maybe it's just these things are so hard to control. You can maybe get a little bit of control. You can find a way, a lane to get a little bit of control, even if it's only like a week or two extra for document production, right? Or time and grace to do your own investigation. That the value of that is not nothing to most clients. No, I, I completely agree. Completely agree. All right. So we've been dancing around this next question a little bit. But I mean, talk to me a little bit about when you should do it, because it sounds like you're, we're not going to recommend self-reporting in every case. But assuming we're in a case where it makes some sense, how do you think about the timing? Well, so one thing I can... <laughs> so if you have a registered ent- entity, like a investment advisor, do it before the exam starts, <laughs> right? You've got something yeah. that is going to come out in an exam. Do it before you get notice of the exam, right? You're on a pretty regular cycle. You have a sense of when it's going to happen when you're due. They're going to find out anyway. Definitely do it before the exam starts because once you get notice of the exam, you will not get cooperation credit of any sort. So, so that suggests and there's a broader lesson here early doing it early i think the same is true on the doj side there was just an fcpa settlement where that the company i think didn't get as much credit as they otherwise could have because there was a suggestion that they waited too long to come in although they did come in um so so the regulator would certainly say early now kurt what are you telling clients how early is too early like when you just get a whiff of something, do you need time to investigate it? How much time is reasonable? How much investigation is reasonable before yeah. you go in? What's your view? Yeah, I mean, like like anything, it's always facts and circumstances, right? Like if you get a credible internal report from somebody who you think could be a whistleblower, that might accelerate the timetable. Otherwise, like I've been in big FCPA investigations where it takes you months to literally figure out if you think there's any there there because there's just a tremendous amount of work to do. And then you've got to make a decision, right? So it's certainly not day one. Sometimes on day one, it's obvious, right? You know that there was an actual problem, right? You get like an executive insider trading and, and you've got the receipts. Then you've got a different, a different type of decision to make. I just think it can't be easier if you're right. And, and clients don't typically want it to be. You've got to have time to sit down with them explain, to explain the potential benefits and make sure they understand that they're probably then in for an investigation. It's going to take some time and some expense and it could be painful. But, you know, if you really think there is some there, even if you end up in the same place, right, as Bill Baker said, as you would have otherwise, then, I mean, especially then, why not try to get some benefit out? Yeah, I mean, I'm guessing that Bill has gotten burned by this before, and we all have gotten yeah. burned by it where we thought we were going to get cooperation credit, but yeah. it was still, the client felt it was still a, a, a less than optimal result. But, you know, clients are generally unhappy with SEC investigations <laughs> and their results because they're invasive and expensive and difficult, and you have to fire people. and. All kinds of things happen. So I'm sympathetic to the problem. I do think, and Bill Baker is very right about this, that the SEC can do a better job of articulating what it means to cooperate beyond the seaboard factors that we've been living with for so long. They can 
take a page from the DOJ's book on this. The DOJ underwent a really significant review process in coming up with their um, corporate enforcement program. All of the guidelines, they interviewed market participants, defense lawyers, all kinds of people, and put a lot of thought and work into those efforts to revamp the policies. And I think the SEC could benefit for a similar process. For example, there, as far as I can tell, is no such thing as individual cooperation unless you are a whistleblower. Yeah, no, I I completely agree with that. So some, and maybe the answer is there's not a better way for individuals and that they can't articulate a standard, but let's at least have a thoughtful two-way or multi-party dialogue about how to articulate what it means so that we can better advise our clients on this. It has been very difficult in this environment to advise clients on likely outcomes. It used to be, in my view, you could sort of handicap the outcome of a case plus or minus 15%, the likely outcome, right? But now we can't do that anymore. It changes. We've got cases in the last week of the fiscal year that are substantially similar in fact pattern and very wildly wildly different, materially different in outcome, both for individual respondents and for corporate respondents. There's just not the kind of consistency. So a little bit of guidance, I think, would be valued by the defense bar and maybe would lead to higher cooperation rates. I agree. And it seems to be something that they are thinking about, right? We noted that Grimbeer Graywall came and, and said a lot of the same things, but among those were some comments on cooperation. I can think of four speeches that, that I've heard from him where he says something like, we will give cooperation credit in appropriate circumstances. And in fact, sometimes we will agree to not bring a case at all, right? So that tells me that he has some matters in mind where he thought the cooperation that he saw was deserving of perhaps the, the most benefit you could you could get, right? But if he's thinking about it, if he knows what it looks like, why don't they tell us? Well, first of all, I'm really impressed that you know how many speeches off the top of your head that Gerbeer has talked about this in. Somebody's going to tell me it was five, but that's just, that's my, <laughs> my recollection. But like in the ballpark, you were yeah. in the ballpark. <laughs> So good on you. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think the DOJ process was really robust and interesting. And the the SEC was involved in that process, right? Like the DOJ comments on off-channel comms did not happen by accident. They happened because they were coordinated with the SEC on this issue. And when they released the DOJ policy, the SEC was in the front row. Right. So so there is a way forward and at least let's have a dialogue between the staff and professional experienced count defense counsel on on how to bring maybe not certainty, but at least a little more transparency to that process. All right. I think that's a good note to uh, to end on. Thank you again for taking some time out to join the Insecurities podcast. Anytime. Happy to be back. Uh, can't wait to see baby pictures. When you talk <laughs> Chris, to Chris, tell him to text me. I know. Maybe we should just post them in the show notes. I don't know. I don't know how his wife would feel about that, but you know, <laughs> might get a few more clicks. <laughs> <laughs> yes, baby pictures are always good for clicks. 
Thanks for having me. It's good to see you. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Insecurities Podcast. And a special thanks to our guest, Sandra Hanna of Miller and Chevalier. We always love to hear from our listeners. Hit us up on social media with your thoughts and comments or topics you'd like us to explore on future episodes of Insecurities. Please use the hashtag InsecuritiesPod on X or LinkedIn to join the conversation. You can find me at Enforce underscore Update, and you can find Chris at Ekimoff CPA. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review Insecurities wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening to Insecurities, a podcast from PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. PLI is a nonprofit provider of authoritative professional services training and continuing education. In an increasingly complex business environment where intricate corporate structures reign, Insecurities can help you make sense of it all. A special thanks goes to the producer of Insecurities, Daniel Pinitz, as well as hosts Chris Ekimoff and Kurt Wolf. For more information about PLI's SEC Institute, or to view hundreds of hours of fresh and relevant on-demand programming covering changes within the security sector, visit pli.edu membership and sign up for a privileged membership. These recorded materials are designed for educational purposes only. This podcast does not constitute legal, audit, tax, consulting, business, financial, investment, or other professional advice, and it does not create an attorney-client relationship. Please consult a qualified professional advisor before taking any action based on the information herein. Furthermore, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individual participants. These views are not the views of the hosts or their employers. Users of this podcast may save and use the podcast only for personal or other non-commercial educational purposes. No other use, including without limitation, reproduction, retransmission, or editing of this podcast may be made without the prior written permission from PLI.